الحمد لله الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks in the Quran about fulfilling covenants, fulfilling promises, not breaking promises, not betraying anybody, not breaking covenants and being true to our word. One of the problems with the munafiqeen Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran about them is that fi qulubihim marad they have sickness in their heart they have an illness in their heart and the reason the illness that we're speaking about it wasn't necessarily some kind of medical problem as such it was a spiritual problem and the problem is this how long can you say something outwardly that you do not agree with internally? How can you claim something externally that you have no belief about inside? How long can you live that lie? They say that when somebody lies, the liar has to constantly remember what he said last time. Because if I'm speaking to you and I meet you again after a few weeks, I better remember what, I, what story I told you last time. Otherwise, you're going to be, you're going to say no, but you didn't say that. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, I, missed, I made a mistake. But no. So, a liar's life is very complicated. They have to remember too much. He may as well go and memorize the Quran if he's going to instead remember everything. He may as well go and memorize the Quran. Right. So, lying is extremely detrimental. All humanity understands that. Through all religions, all cultures, all ideologies, lying is a bad thing. The world would not function with lying. There's lying and we just about function, but if it was lying was tolerable and acceptable, then nothing would be predictable. You'd be listening to somebody and the default would be that he's probably lying. So do I trust him or not? Can you imagine it? Right now, most of us that are normal, when we listen to somebody, we believe what they say. We have some skeptical people among us who don't believe in anything. They, you will really have to prove everything. They always look at you and listen to you with skepticism. I mean, these are just various different manifestations of this. So, it says that if you work in an environment that you disagree with morally, you will be depressed. For example, if you've found a job which, you know, you've been looking for a job for a very long time and eventually you find the job somewhere which has some haram elements. For example, you have to sell beer or serve wine or restaurant job or something like this and you disagree with it but you've got stomach, stomachs to feed, you know, you've got people to feed and you can't find any other job and this is the only one that you're stuck in. How are you going to feel all day in that job, spending several hours it's very demoralizing. Human beings are, are created to be internally and externally the same. The external should manifest the inward. That's why scholars say, for example, that there are adab for eating. There are etiquette for eating. Now, 
if I'm sitting with others when I'm eating, I'm going to have to be a bit more careful in the way I eat if I have bad manners in eating at home. That means I've got separate manners for home and I've got separate manners for outside. That's too complicated. Right? Why do we want that headache? Why do we want that tension? The ulama mentioned, correct your etiquette at home so that you could be the same everywhere you go. For example, not making too much noise when eating, not talking too much with the mouth full, not eating from all over the place, not dropping too much food, and so on and so forth. These are all contradictions in life. And of course, if the human being can be as God-fearing with taqwa at home, in the privacy of their bedroom, as they can be outside, then that would be ultimate. But these are the challenges that we face. So, if I discuss today the concept of breaking a promise, which relates to all of this. Breaking a promise could be done for different reasons. And we want to understand the hudud and the limits to this. What is halal, what is haram to do in this case? Making a promise while intending to break it um, is haram. So... Uh, you come and say, can you please help me out? Can you uh, come to this meeting on that day? And I have no intention to come. And I say, yeah, 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 of course I'll come. Don't worry, count on me, I'll be there. That's blatantly haram. Because you are promising something, knowing inside that you're not going to come. This is completely wrong. However, if you make the promise that yes, I will come, and your intention is to come, and then later you forgot or later something came up and you were unable to make it, then that's not haram. Right? That's not haram because you're, you, when you said something with your tongue, yes, I will come, your intention was there. Because it's about the future, it's not about now. You're not lying about the past, it's about the future and future can change. Now there's some people who I've come across, they are very good-hearted people. Right? They have a very good heart. And every time you say, can you please help me out with this? Can you come here? Yeah, yeah, I'll come, I'll come, I'll help you out, I'll do this, I'll get it for you. But they don't end up doing it. Not because they don't want to. Right? It's because they over-promise. So there's a concept called over-promising. Right? Where you promise too much just to... Well, there could be many reasons for this. Some is that you just want to sound nice. You don't want to say no. You find it difficult to say no. But you have no intention inside them. That will become haram. Right? Just to make them feel good right now. That's actually worse. You'd rather make them feel bad right now than to set them, let them um, stand them up on the day. That's what I do now. I'll tell you that. You know, because as imams, as uh, scholars, people ask you to do a lot of things. And um, I... My personality trait is to be uh, trait is to be brutally honest anyway, right? So even if it hurts sometimes, I, you know, I can't be diplomatic. I just say, look, I'm sorry, I can't. Oh, but you know, they. Well, why don't you say maybe I'll try? You know, because sometimes it actually sounds better to say I'll try and then not come. But I don't believe in that, right? Because I feel that look. I, if I can't come, I'm going, to make sure I can't, I'm going to make sure I tell you that so that you can find somebody else. 
it's easier for planning purposes it's better because you know that okay well, let's not rely on it he says he might come I don't really think he just says I might come he said inshallah I'll come now inshallah unfortunately that's become sometimes a problematic term as well for some people so if, you're in t if you find that your habit is to keep promising but you don't end up fulfilling it even though your intention is you would love to help then stop promising just don't promise so much rather it's better if you don't promise and say look I, I won't be able to do it and the author of one of the famous dictionaries he says that according to the Arabs breaking a promise is a form of lying when you break a promise it is like you lied while not fulfilling a threat is generosity now what does that mean if I threaten somebody that I will take them to court or if they come late then I will not give them something like we tell our children right that uh, if you don't do this then I'm going to cut your pocket money or I'm going to take away your Xbox or whatever the case is right? now from a disciplinary perspective you should do it if you never do it then you will end up with children who won't trust you they'll never take what you say to be serious I've got a friend who works in a prison with juveniles I think with young offenders so he told us that over the years when he's been working with these people he discusses their he discusses their problems their crimes whatever it is so one of them went in for robbery one of them had come into the prison for robbery and he was speaking to him that how did you get into robbery and you'd be surprised he blamed his mother more than anybody else you know how he said that when I was young I we, we would go to somebody's house and as children always do right do you do this when you go to somebody's house you want to take their toys to play with you go to somebody's house you say and you, you're playing with something with your cousin right then when it's time to go you want to take that toy with you it's a normal thing for children to do do you feel like doing that sometimes never yes. All right. okay you for, you've probably forgotten, right? Next time, just don't do that. Um, so, now what, what, what generally happens? If somebody comes to your house and he's gonna, he wants to take a toy, what do you say? As parents, what will you say to the guest? Just take it. That's what you'll say, right? Generally, people say, I don't know if they mean it or not, but they say, just take it. What should the parents say? The good parents will say, no, you can't take this. You've got enough toys at home. Because with toys, they get old very quickly. And you end up just packing new and new and new toys. And the more you have, the less valued toys become. And they just want everything new. Right? Now, if you say no, and you're firm, the child is not going to like it. He may throw a tantrum if he's a really stubborn child. But that's how you discipline them. This mother of this particular individual would let him take it. Right? The people would just say, the, ho the house owner, house host would say, yes, take it. His mother wouldn't say anything. Slowly, slowly, he got into the habit. Then what he started doing, he, feels, he felt a sense of entitlement. So he would go to school with his sister. His sister was much younger than him. And he started stealing from a shop. 
He would have the sister stand in a strategic position to watch that nobody was coming. He would take from the shop. Eventually he stole from a mall. That's when he got caught. And then he ended up in prison. And he blames his mother for it. Because his mother, for years and years and years, never stopped him from taking something from somebody's house and allowed him to take it. For whatever reason that was. Small, small acts like that. Now Allah knows best whether it's really her fault or not, but he thinks it's like that. And if somebody feels like that about their parents, that's really sad. So, that's why it's best to discipline ourselves from the beginning so that we don't have to have this turmoil afterwards. Now, if we, pro- if uh, Imam Bukhari, etc., um, our scholars, they've said that, for example, if I tell a small child, come here, come here, I've got something, I've got a sweet in my hand, and you don't have a sweet in your hand, then that is haram to do that. That is wrong to do that. Because you're lying. That child is going to come, a poor, innocent child, young, impressionable child, is going to come and want your sweet, and then he doesn't find a sweet in there. What, does that, what are you telling that children about adults? That you can't trust them. They will start doing the same thing to others. They will start doing the same thing to others. The, the discipline has to be balanced. If you tell your children you don't trust them, then that's actually worse than telling them you trust them but not trusting them. Psychologically, that they say that's worse. Because when they know that my parents don't trust me, then they make another personality for themselves. It's a very, very delicate issue. It's a very, very delicate issue. They did some studies in, um, I'm not sure if it was Zambia or one of these African countries, where they had children sitting in an exam chamber. This was a test. They went out for a few moments to see, and they told them not to cheat. They put a small exam, like a basic test for them, and they said that we're going to walk out the room, we don't want anybody asking anybody anything. So that's what they did. Now the more, if they explained properly, less people cheated, because they gave them trust. Right? They gave them trust. They gave them, they said that if you don't cheat and you get high marks, then you're going to get a better result. You're going to get a better award. It was better to incentivize it. So sometimes it's better to do it that way. So now what he's saying here is that if you have warned somebody about something, that you're going to do something, and it ends up that you, um, you then don't do that thing for them out of grace, then that is generosity. So for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made promises to us that in the hereafter you will be given Jannah, you will be given this, you will be given that, all of the rewards that He's promised us. But He's also, he's also warned us that if you do X, Y and Z, you'll be punished. Now the ulama, from a theological perspective, they, they've discussed that can Allah go against that? Can He not reward you, even though you've done good deeds? And he's accepted it. Can he said, no, I still don't want to give it to you. Of course. Right. In Qudra perspective, he can do whatever he wants. But can he? He will not do that. 
because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't go against his promise. Allah doesn't go against his promise. So if he wants to, he can do whatever he wants. But because he's promised you, he will not go against his promise. But if he's promised that he'll punish somebody, and then after that he forgives and doesn't punish, is that allowed or not? Right. So in fulfilling the promise he's made to you, that he's going to do because he promised it. But when he's made a warning, can he go against that warning and not punish you? Yes, he can. Because that's considered generosity. Right? And that's after the fact. Whereas with our children, we keep doing it, we teach them the wrong thing. But sometimes we can let them off. Okay, to move on now. Ibn Mas'ud anhu would not make a promise without saying, Insha'Allah. The reason is that he was honest about his promise. He had full intention to uh, fulfill his promise. But the reason why he said insha'Allah, this is a bit technical, that in Sharia, when you say insha'Allah with everything, it means if Allah wills. So you're saying that I will come if Allah wills. Now we don't know what Allah has willed. So we've left it to Allah. So because of that, tomorrow if I couldn't come, then at least I have a way out and I won't be sinful because Allah hasn't willed that I'm going to come tomorrow because I couldn't come tomorrow. Do you understand that? Like if I say, if you t tell me that come and give us a lecture tomorrow and I say, I'll come inshallah because I'm a bit doubtful. Right? I'll come inshallah. This is to protect myself. Now what happens is tomorrow I was unable to come so I called you and I said, I'm sorry, I'm unable to come. But because I've said inshallah, I've already got a release. I won't be any, in any kind of haram because Allah has decided that I'm not going to come tomorrow. So that's insha'Allah. Now, insha'Allah, we use it generally for tabarruk. We generally use it. When we say insha'Allah, we use it for barakah. Right? I'll come insha'Allah, I'll do this insha'Allah. Insha'Allah it will come. That's how we use it. From a fiqh perspective, insha'Allah is such a powerful word that if I say, you know, on my, if, uh, if somebody's getting married here, and you know, we make them say, nakahtuha, right? Tazawwajtuha, qabiltuha, right? Is that, uh, you guys, uh, he says, qabiltuha, insha'Allah, the marriage will not be done. If he said, you are divorced, insha'Allah, it's not a divorce. But you, you can't say, you're divorced, and then after you finish, insha'Allah. It's too late. Do you understand? It's already done. But if you said, you are divorced, insha'Allah, there's no divorce. Don't do this, by the way. You don't play around with divorce. Because right? it's not a word to play around with. But the idea is that insha'Allah, because you're saying, if Allah wills, that's the real meaning of insha'Allah. Ibn Masood used to always say that, so just in case he couldn't do something, at least he wouldn't be sinful for it. However, you must be careful that when you say insha'Allah, it doesn't give the impression that you don't really mean to come. That's why they, they, it's become one of those insha'Allah promises. It's really sad that that's what people have taken it to be. <clears throat> now, if firm resolve is understood in the prayer, you made a promise to somebody that I'll come tomorrow and they understood it, right? And you expected to come. Should you, you have to fulfill it, right? Unless you've got an excuse. Unless you've got an excuse. If you have an excuse, you're allowed to exclude yourself, to excuse yourself. So for example, something else came up and I couldn't come, 
then technically I could say, I'm really sorry, because it's not an obligation. Right? There's no contract. It's a promise. It's a grace. It's just something done out of goodwill. A promise is always done out of goodwill. So that's why you could actually say that you have a serious excuse, then you could, you could and you wouldn't be sinful, and it wouldn't even be makruh. Otherwise, if you, if you broke a promise without a genuine excuse, it's going to be at least makruh. And I think, depending on how severe its impact will be, it will be makru tahrimi or tanzihi. It's just a small issue. There were lots of people who were going to meet together. And it doesn't matter whether you came or not. Not a big deal. You'd promised to go and you didn't go. It's makru tanzihi. But if they were relying on you, you're the main man. And without you, they couldn't have the meeting. Then that's probably going to be worse. Depending on how, the, how much nuksan and damage is going to be done here. Now, why did the Prophet ﷺ say that breaking a promise is like hypocrisy or is hypocrisy? How does that fit into this? The situation of hypocrisy is if one is determined to not fulfill the promise from before, like we mentioned, the haram one. That is hypocrisy because only hypocrites would do that. You see, when you say hypocrisy, hypocrites had two problems. They had the problem in the heart, which we discussed. The other one was hypocrite in their actions. So you know the hadith says that the sign of a hypocrite are three. When he speaks, he lies. Whenever he speaks something, he lies. When he makes a promise, he breaks it. These are not... This doesn't make a person a proper hypocrite, like the person who doesn't have iman in his heart. It just makes the person have one of the characteristics of a hypocrite. Because those people who have true hypocrisy or faith in their heart, they would generally break promises and do this. So there are two types of hypocrisy, hypocrisy of the heart and hypocrisy in action. So these three are the hypocrisy in actions and we obviously don't want anything related to hypocrisy. So that's why it should be avoided. Now, what is the opposite of breaking a promise? Is to fulfill a promise. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O oh, believers, why do you say that which you yourself fail to do? Right. Utterly despised is it with Allah that you say what you perform not. Now, although here you're not making any promises, you're just telling people to do something which you don't yourself do. That sounds like a different thing, doesn't it? But it's still related to that same internal disease. The way the modern world puts it, they say, look at that politician. He got caught doing this. And because of that, they make a big deal out of it, and they should make a big deal out of it. Right? Now, what we have to understand is that if there's somebody who believes in a certain ideology, that ethically this should be wrong, but the poor guy is involved in it himself, and then he makes a mistake. Well, that's understandable. That doesn't mean that he's a hypocrite. Hypocrisy, I believe, is where you claim something while knowing full well that you don't agree with it. But if somebody believes that a certain sexual vice is wrong, unethical, but the poor guy gets involved in it, right? He doesn't want to, but he fails. Well, that's not hypocrisy. That's a failing. 
For example, somebody is campaigning against zina, right? Fornication. And the poor guy gets involved in fornication. Maybe that's why he's campaigning against it because he hates it so much. But the poor guy got, got involved. Now, I don't consider that hypocrisy because he believes in his heart that it's wrong, but he failed. Humans have a failing. Everybody believes that lying is wrong, but some people lie sometimes. So, the way the modern world puts it is that if you are doing something in secret which you openly disagree, you can't openly disagree with it. Just come out and come out of the closet. And that's problematic. Because there are struggles human beings have. Right? We all have some struggles and tensions with different things in our life. If things that we're struggling with, we should just give up and just say, okay, we're going to embrace them, then can you imagine it? Some people have struggles with, with stealing. Kleptomania it's called. They can't help it. They don't want to steal, but they can't help it. They don't really need it. They just do it. What's that going to do? Some people have this attitude that they like to burn things. Should they just come out and do it? Right. So, th this gets confusing in the modern world here. That if you have struggled with something, don't struggle just... And counsellors actually, you know, I, I, there was a case of something similar. And the person went to a counsellor. And they had to run away from the counsellor because the counsellor was saying that if that's what you believe, that's what you're struggling with, just embrace it. Right, psychoanalysis. That, just, just do it. It's like, man, I came to you for a solution. Not to, not, not to make it, not, you know, not, I didn't come to a shaitan. So it's very, very complicated in the world we live in today because of the postmodern ideology that's out there about, you know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Anyway, fulfilling the promise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as I said, mentioned, this verse applies to one speech that contradicts one's action. A promise to do good that one utters with his tongue, yet he does not fulfill. Religious knowledge that one verbalizes yet does not act upon. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for protection for, for, because ulama are in this position. Right? Activists are in this position where they're claiming things, where they're encouraging certain things. But I, you see, somebody came to Imam Malik rahimahullah and he said that if somebody doesn't avoid a certain wrong, but then they constantly prohibit other people from it, then is that correct or not? He said, of course. Of course. He says, because after the Prophet ﷺ, who is there that never sinned? And, he, and they say that if after the Prophet ﷺ, if people were not to do Amr bil ma'roof and nahi anil munkar, unless they were pure, then there would be nobody able to do that. And basically, people claim there's a, po there's a poem which says that. They want, they want to stop people from prohibiting others unless they themselves are completely pure for the reason that if nobody tells anybody anything, then we all become the same, then there's no feeling of guilt. The reason why people don't want they, is because uh, it, I, I've had cases where I've gone to places where... I didn't eat a certain dish because I felt that the meat wasn't correct while other Muslims were eating it. Right? And this was in America where there's a huge confusion about what is halal and what is dhabiha. So I refused to eat it. Not, I didn't make a big fuss. I just didn't eat it. So 
uh, one of the Muslims, this was a non-Muslim program where they had tried to cater, but they got it sourced from not a 100% halal place, right? Which is clearly problematic. So I didn't eat it, I ate something else. What's the big deal? That's my problem, it's my issue. The Muslim comes up to me and says, what's your problem with eating this? I said, well, I just don't trust it. He says, no, but you, you know, if somebody says, Bismillah, it should be acceptable, this, that, and the other. I said, look, you take whatever you want, but if it makes you feel more guilty because I'm not, then what's the problem here? I went to a Rotary Club meeting once to give a talk on Islam. Right? So I go like this, and I saw a Muslim there. This was in America, by the way. I saw a Muslim there, and... He kind of avoided me in the beginning, right? He wasn't very interested in me. I was like, who is this guy? He's come to give a talk here with all of these influential people. And then I gave the talk, and alhamdulillah, the talk went very well. Alhamdulillah, right? The talk went very well. So I got a massive applause at the end, and all of these guys are coming to, you know, shake your hands. And, and then he comes up afterwards. So it all went right. Because initially his idea was that anybody who's dressed like this with topi, you know, kurta or whatever, is, is going gonna, is gonna to mess it up. Um, but maybe that's a bit stereotypical. I want to ask you a question. In the last four weeks, I've got two calls, one from a brother, one from a sister. They call me and they say, do you speak Bengali? <laughs> so I was like, why would you ask that question? Oh, because if you spoke Bengali, then we could speak to you in Bengali. But they were speaking perfect English, right? <laughs> yeah, Allah. So I was like, why, why are you asking? He goes, no, it's just, I'm just asking. Then this was two. And then another one, um, do you speak English? Right? And you could tell it's Urdu speaking person. Like, do you speak English? I said, yes, I speak English. Are, are you calling somebody in Pakistan? Or are you calling somebody in the UK? Right? I said, you're calling somebody in London in the UK. Oh, sorry, I didn't check properly. But you know what my reading of this is? It's a stereotypical that muftis don't know English. It's this ideology that muftis are these old guys, right, who don't speak English, so we must speak to them in Bengali or Urdu or whatever the case is. Right? It's quite interesting. Um, I'm not joking, I had three calls in four weeks about this. Two Bengali and one. Do Bengalis think that everybody speaks Bengali or something? <coughs> but mashallah, you guys have preserved your language. The Gujaratis are losing it, right? But mashallah, you guys are preserving your language, which is really good. You speak Bengali? Sometimes. Well, you do it sometimes. My kid doesn't do it any time. You speak Bengali? Huh? No. What do you speak? English. Or you speak sign language? Mashallah. What do you speak? And? That's good. You should, speak a, you should speak both. It's good to have more than one language. It will help you in the world. Don't ever think that, you know, I shouldn't learn it. In America, I used to have these parents, it was one Sri Lankan family. They had a very accented English. And they were speaking with their children like that. It's like, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking to your children in English? Speak to them in Tamil. They're going to pick up English in the school. You can't stop them. They will, they will learn English. But if you speak to them in your accent, you're going to... Because I used to teach that child, he used to speak typical. 
right? I'm saying like, this is wrong. You don't need to teach English at, at home. That's why you send them to school at school. For school is more powerful than home. See, for children, there are three environments they learn from. One is the home environment. The second one is the school environment. And the third is the social, you know, wherever you stay, your estate environment, whatever it is. Which is the most powerful one? School is probably the most powerful one. And then when your outside environment is the same, if both of them are speaking English, there's no way the person is not going to speak English. And then the home environment. So now you have, to, you have to really have a good home environment to be able to counter any wrongs that are learnt through the school environment and the outside environment. That's very important for us to do. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O believers, fulfill all commitments. Awfu bil uqud. Fulfilling a promise is something that is in the Quran. The Prophet said, A promise is like a debt. In fact, it is even of more merit to fulfill. You get even more reward to fulfill it. Ibn Abid Dunya relates this. Now, you know, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about Ismail alayhi salam. Right? He was ever truthful in fulfilling promises. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remember him from all of these different qualities he had? He remembered him with this particular point. So what's related is that Ismail had agreed to meet somebody at a certain place, but the person didn't show up. So for example, you said, okay, I'm going to meet you, right, by the masjid or whatever tomorrow. And the person doesn't show up. What are you going to do? Now, obviously, we have phones now, so you're going to try to call them. But in those days, there was no phones. What would you do? He says that Ismail waited there for 22 days. And nobody's telling you to do that, right? But at least don't be rushed either. Because sometimes people, it can be, sometimes people can uh, come late. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ, it's related about him, and I think this was in the early days, before maybe prophecy. He had arranged to meet with somebody and the person didn't show up. The Prophet ﷺ waited for 24 hours until the next day when the person remembered, he went and he found the Prophet ﷺ there. And the Prophet ﷺ, all he said to him was that you have inconvenienced me. That's it. Now we get angry when somebody comes 10 minutes late. Sometimes. Well, actually, we're used to 10 minutes. But if they come 10 minutes above that. I've, I've learned that when somebody invites you to a wedding, don't go on time. Allahu Akbar. You get burned. You have to sit there for two hours. Right? Guys are notorious for this. You have to wait for two hours. So now I actually purposely go late. Because, I mean, you know, you don't have time to waste. Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, a great tabi, he was asked about a man who agrees to meet somebody at a place and the other person doesn't show up how long should you wait for right so this is now a good question how long should you wait for somebody what do you think it depends on the situation what's an average like how long should you wait for five minutes ten minutes this is what Ibrahim al Nakhai said when he was asked this as a fatwa, as a question. How long should I wait for if the person doesn't turn up? He says he should wait until the next prayer time. 
Now I think this is based on custom, right? Every community has different custom. For example, it's said about certain countries when they have a uh, when they have a um, a appointment, they'll come five minutes before, right? I think that's inconvenient, right? Because not everybody is prepared five minutes before. The Germans, what they do is they, if they get there five minutes before, they'll walk around the block until it comes to the exact time, then they'll ring the bell. I think that's perfect, right? And a lot of time, I want to tell you another thing. A lot of the time, we generally say this is a Muslim problem. But it's not a Muslim problem. It's an Asian problem, right? It's an Arab problem, but it's not a Muslim problem. Because when you look at Turks, for example, as the, the Turks that I know, they're Muslims and they don't come late. They're generally on time, in general, right? So there are cultures around. We always reduce everything to a Muslim problem. Don't do that. You're, it's not a Muslim problem. It's a Gujarati problem, Indian problem, Bengali problem, Arab problem, whatever it is, right? But it's not a Muslim problem because not all Muslims around the world are that undisciplined. Right? It's the culture we come from. So, when, the, uh, when you can break a promise or when you cannot show up is when it becomes inconvenient for you to do so. Then you just tell them that I can't come. But you remember... If you can't tell them and you still don't show up and it was genuinely inconvenient for you, then you apologize later, right? For example, what could be the reasons why you don't show up? Either due to a greater interest, there's something that's more important for you to do, a change of opinion, as opposed to simply for no reason. I just don't feel like going. That would be bad because you're leaving somebody in the lurch. However, one should make every effort to fulfill both the promise and the new greater interest. Imam Ghazali says that the one who breaks a promise for a valid excuse is not a hypocrite. Right? So inshallah we won't be in that warning. Yet his act has the appearance of hypocrisy. I may know inside that I had a greater reason for not going. But the person who's going to be looking at me is going to think, man, this guy doesn't fulfill his promises. So it has the appearance of hypocrisy. And then he comments that a person should really strive to avoid even the appearance of hypocrisy just as he would do to real hypocrisy. So that he should not consider himself excused without genuine necessity. So as far as promise, as far as possible, fulfill your promises. Now, many ulama have written that to break a promise is unless, uh, to, you know, after having intended to do so, then to not show up and not fulfill it is makrut and zihi in general. This is unless the person's harm is going to be great. So you don't, if you don't show up to a meeting and it's not going to be harmful, that's fine. But if you didn't, uh, give me an example of something where they would have financial harm because you didn't turn up. For example, I promised to borrow you money, right? Maulana was going to buy a house and I promised to lend him some money. He went and signed and gave the 10% down, right? Is it 10%? Right? They gave 10% down. Now, after the, you've given the 10%, you've signed the contract. If you don't put the rest of the money in, you lose your 10 pound, your 10%. And I was supposed to give him 100,000 one day, maybe I have that ability, right? To give him 100,000. You have your house, Maulana? Inshallah. Right. 
Maybe this is setting something up here. Right? And at the last minute, he relies on me because he thinks I'm a trustworthy individual, signs the contract, he goes to the auction, and he thinks that I'm going to give him the money. You know, you have 30 days to pay or something. He bids on it. And, uh, and then after that, I pull out. Now, that's a financial burden. And if that's not haram, then what is it going to be? So that's why the ulama have mentioned, contemporary scholars, they say that certain promises, particularly those that entail financial responsibility or likewise, are always mandatory to fulfill based on the amount of harm that would otherwise ensue. We no longer live in a loose world where you can break promise and it's easy. Here it's all about contracts. And if you mess up on that, it, it, you know, people are unforgiving. They will take you to court, they will rinse you. So it's no longer where you could just argue your way out or promise somebody or just uh, convince somebody. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for making us of those whose heart and external self is the same and who fulfill their promises and who understand if we're of those people who over promise then let's stop over promising just be upfront and nice and clear about it allahumma anta salam wa minka salam tabarakti adal jalali wal ikram allahumma ya hayyu ya qayyum bi rahmatika nastaghith allahumma ya hannanu ya mannan la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inna kunna min al-zalimin jazallahu anna muhammadan ma huwa ahluh oh allah we ask for your mercy oh allah we ask for your forgiveness oh allah we ask for your blessings oh allah we ask forgiveness from all of those sins that we have committed that brings evil influence in our lives oh allah forgive us those sins that take away the blessing from our life oh allah we ask you to forgive those sins that bring dark darknesses in our life and that turn people against each other oh allah we are suffering from many miseries because of our sins oh allah above all we ask you forgiveness from those sins that have become now part and parcel of our life and we've stopped even thinking wrong about them oh allah grant us forgive us for our thought Make us more discerning. O oh Allah, make, make your, grant us your love and the love of those whose love benefits us in your court. O oh Allah, make for us and our children, make, make our spouses and our children a source of gladness for our eyes. O oh Allah, make our children and our progeny until the day of judgment a source of gladness for our eyes. Protect them from all the fitna that is out there. Protect us all from the fitna that is out there. Allow us to do the right kind of tarbiyah. O oh Allah, allow us to be fully truthful. Make us from the siddiqeen. O oh Allah, make us from those whose inside and outside is the same in truthfulness to you. O oh Allah, protect us from all the characteristics of hypocrisy. O oh Allah, grant us ikhlas in our deeds. O oh Allah, make this Ramadan better than any Ramadan before it. O oh Allah, make us closer, you to, closer to you this month than we've ever been before. But O oh Allah, allow us to remain close to you and do not allow us to retrogress after the month of Ramadan finishes. O oh Allah, protect us from the shaitan. O oh Allah, bless all of those who've established these communities of the first generation. If they've departed this world, fill their graves with light and make the stages of the hereafter easy for them. Grant them Jannatul Firdaus. And those who are here, O oh Allah, allow us to rise to the challenge and to do what's correct for this time and age. 
Oh Allah, oh Allah, safeguard our Muslim brothers and sisters, remove them from their oppression around the world and bring back the humanity in the human being. Oh Allah, finally we ask that you send your abundant blessings on our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and you grant us his company in the hereafter. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wassalamun ala al-mursaleen. Alhamdulillah.